just lived through like a cataclysmic crisis that actually didn't really have that big of an impact in the long run on how we work. If you don't like organizing, uh, you ain't gonna like this next guest. Jamie McCollum uh, is back for his second time on the One Huddle Bring It In podcast. Jamie McCollum, if uh, you don't remember, is an author, teacher, activist, focuses on labor and work issues around the world, currently associate professor of sociology at Middlebury College. Uh, his work has won scholarly awards and appeared in the Washington Post, Mother Jones, Jacobin Descent, and these times in other magazines. And his latest book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice, uh, is the reason for Jamie coming back to talk to us about it. Jamie joined us a few years back talking about his then latest book, Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. Jamie's work is tremendous. His latest book, Essential, talks about the effects and the impact of the pandemic, not just on workers, but on the movement for worker rights, uh, is essential, no pun intended, reading, for anybody who cares about building a strong, connected, empowered, motivated, cared for uh, workforce. I want to talk a little bit about his latest book. I want to talk about how uh, he's looking at the current labor movements. I want to talk a little bit about how he saw the effects of the pandemic on work and what his hope is for the future of work. Here's Jamie McCollum. Let's bring it in. So, Jamie, I got the new book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for uh, Worker Justice. Uh, as equally, to, I got the other one here. I'm sure you probably have a few others. I got them all. Um this one is equally marked up like the last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of, lot of dog ears, a lot of notes, I guess, to, to kickstart, you know, what, what made you write essential? Um, well, I wrote the other book in 2020, which was not about the pandemic, but which came out right in the middle of it or that first year. So I thought, you know, it's a chance that everything I said in that book was going to be wrong because the pandemic would change everything. It turns out that was not true. The pandemic, everything that was bad before the pandemic was just worse during the pandemic. So uh, the other book made sense in a way, but I just wanted to have a way to, you know, understand what impact the pandemic was having on labor issues. I was teaching a course on labor at that time and some student raised his hand and he said, you know, do you think what's going on in China is going to affect the world economy. And I was like, maybe. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, and uh, so I started thinking about it. I did some interviews early there, then some interviews in, in, in Lombardy, Italy, when it went there. And then as the pandemic migrated, I just sort of took it up in the US. And so, you know, I love doing that kind of work. And for me, it was a good way to understand day-to-day reality of what was going on in different kinds of workplaces. So that's where it started. I mean, I didn't really, I barely even had a book plan. I just wanted to start interviewing people. And then eventually I was like, okay, this is, there's something here. This is not going to be over in two weeks. Let's, you know, make a thing out of it. So for those that are listening who are, you know, maybe a talent leader, a manager, a C-level executive working in an environment where, um, you know, businesses have people, um, what did, what did you learn um, that you can share with those that maybe haven't read the book yet 
what were the high level learnings you had as you had those conversations and um, you went through the process of writing essential? You mean, uh, what did I learn with workers? Yeah. What did, I guess, what was the big learning for, for you? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> some of it was like, you know, confirming or yeah, reconfirming what we know. And that is like that the lowest and even mid-level stratum of the American workforce is pretty unprotected. Um, they work in jobs that are fairly precarious, which with wages that are comparably low to previous decades, um, and with low levels of support from the legal and political situation, and certainly from the trade union movement. So all those things were we sort of knew and were probably worse during the first couple months of the pandemic. Um, I'd say the first thing that struck me though was just how the the sort of shocking uh, contradiction between how necessary some essential workers were and how vulnerable they were at the same time. Like, you know, we often think there's a link between how important someone is to the economy and how much power they have. Like, you know, like longshoremen on the docks unload cargo. If they don't work, nothing gets into the country, right? <laughs> so they have a lot of power as a result of that because they're so uh, necessary and essential. Essential workers were essentially doing life-saving work then, but that didn't really translate uh, into long-term stability, long-term power, long-term progress for their jobs. So I think overall, that was a major takeaway for me that, that that truism that we think about the economy didn't really work for essential workers. Um, another one was, however, which is sort of the flip side, <clears throat> you know, it really, it really pushed home this idea that like, um, when workers have good jobs, it's good for all of us. When workers have bad jobs, it's bad for all of us. So that kind of level of interdependence that we have on essential workers was true before the pandemic, but was much more highlighted during, I think. You know, like the book is written about essential workers, but it's really for every everybody else. And that's, you know, that sort of, you know, their working conditions or our living conditions was something that I tried to really bring out in the book. When I'm sure you've obviously been doing a lot of interviews and talking to a lot of people since the release of the book, any feedback that has surprised you uh, from folks that have, have read it? What, what are people, what's the kind of common point that people may be raising to you after reading it? Um. There's a few. I mean, I think that there was it was not really it's not widely appreciated um, the kinds of pandemic era like labor unrest that was happening. If you look at official statistics collect, collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there was eight large strikes in 2020, which is basically a record low. But there was so much else going on, like little protests, little sit-ins, many strikes. Uh, large bouts of organizing um, that that sort of, uh, you know, rocked th that first year and a half of the pandemic. And I think that isn't, you know, was a thing that people sort of have always been 
surprised at when they read it. Um, I think the the other thing, which is sort of less positive, but like the the what has changed element, and you know, there's a lot of things that have changed, but much more stayed the same. And so I think that we just lived through like a cataclysmic crisis that actually didn't really have that big of an impact in the long run on how we work. Yes, some people work from home now, um, but you know, like by and large labor conditions and the expectations of what we assume workers owe us didn't really change that much. And I think, you know, a lot of people are surprised. They, they expect me to say some, you know, throw back the curtain and say, my God, everything's different now. And in fact, everything's mostly the same. And that's sort of, I think, a sadder commentary on what we, you know, lessons we didn't learn probably from the pandemic. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that you said in the book uh, was that um, those with a college, I believe college degree are six times more likely to be able to work from home and, you know, uh, talking to a lot of, you know, I, t I attend a lot of hospitality, restaurant, retail, trade conferences. And, you know, it is discouraging in the last year and a half to hear a lot of people stand on stage and talk about innovation and then um, get off the stage and say, you know, nothing is budgeted for people, wages, labor till 2024 or five. You know, it's, it's right. uh, I don't know how innovative that is, but um I mean, you know, that that segment was obviously the hardest hit, you know, so your regional economy was impacted to the extent to which there was a large service sector or there is a large tourism sector. And so obviously the bounce back in, from the pandemic economy was hardest on those people you just talked about. And I know a little bit about, um, you know, hotel work. I mean, hotel work. The labor in hotels is the largest factor in how a hotel makes money, like the largest portion of that income. And hotels make more money off rooms than they do off other services. Um, so there was a large incentive to keep those things the same. And, you know, some hotel workers make decent money, but most do not. And so in that sense, um, you know, that's one example of industry, which probably had the potential to grow a lot in terms of like how it operated, but ultimately is slowly coming back to its old business model. I got to ask, I mean, this is not an easy question, but I'm sure you get it. Like what, what can companies do? What do you hope that, you know, the person, you know, I picked up, I actually saw this at politics and prose. I was in DC with my oh, yeah. my daughter was downstairs reading, you know, bankrupting me off, you know, every book she could put in the in the basket and i was upset right. saw this and i sent you an email from yeah, yeah. i was like what is this i yeah I, it, it, like it missed me and you know i just imagine like if the ceo of a hospitality or hotel brand like you mentioned they pick up the book and they read it and what what what, is, what call what action steps if any uh do you think are a step in the right direction that you hope a c-level executive or an enterprise can take to start, you know, creating a world where, um, you know, things are more fair, more just for workers at all corners of the workforce. Well, I mean, the largest crisis facing the hotel and hospitality industry and a couple of industries that are adjacent to that is staffing. You can't find people to work in a hotel. I mean, they're, they're now, you know, I'm sure that you've experienced it. 
that like, you know, when you go to a hotel, they ask you, do you want your room cleaned every day or do you want it just tidied up on Wednesday or whatever, right? You know, they don't really have enough people to do that job. Um, so it's like, well, why not? <laughs> and like, what are you going to do to attract people? I think, you know, one thing that came out of this for me is when I talk about this, people are like, what's up with the labor shortage? And I'm like, we have a economic system that does not incentivize people to work in the most important, sometimes life-saving industries like healthcare or food that we need, right? Like for whatever reason, we're short a lot of people. So in hotel workers, there are things people can do that, I mean, in a capitalist system, we have a ready-made solution to this problem, and that is money. Like if, if hotel workers began making a million dollars a year, you and I would just become hotel workers. Like we would, we would flood into the, you'd have a flood of occupations. A million's too much. Well, how much is the right amount? So we might not, even though wages have gone up a little bit, we might not have hit the right amount. Um, the other thing is like the scheduling, the way scheduling done, which is increasingly automated um, in that industry is, you know, routinely reported by workers to be, um, a much harder schedule to meet, a much harder sort of uh, daily, like room cleaning schedule, just to say that. Um, the uh, voice on the job of most American workers is nothing, you know? So can companies solve that? No, not easily right off the bat, but they can, they can remain neutral in the face of a union organizing drive when workers decide to go for representation. So that would be important. In healthcare, I mean, um, you know, we don't have actually a shortage of nurses. We have, I think, one seventh of the registered nurses on planet Earth. So they just they just are not working as registered nurses because the job is pretty bad. And so there's plenty of things that healthcare, you know, employers and CEOs and whatever can do, not just raising wages but creating better schedules for people, um, more flexibility in when you can and cannot work. All of those things are things that nurses routinely say would be attractive to keep them on the job. The um, One of the other things you talked about that surprised me was, I don't think I'd ever realized this, was specifically around the earned income tax credit that you talk about in the book, where... Um, you know, companies have a lot to benefit from programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit that create, um, and tell me if I'm, I'm on the right path here, but it creates an environment where, you know, essentially workers can be more stable and they don't have to pay anything else. <laughs> so I, I, that was a really surprising um, uh, yeah. point. I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. I mean, you want your workforce I, I mean, I'm not an employer, but my, the perception is that like you want your workforce to be stable, to like have its basic needs met, like childcare, and you know, I mean, like personally, I think there's em employers. There's a history in the book which we maybe don't go into here, but large employers helped construct. The healthcare system we have in America, which is that most Americans get it through get it through their job, like employers for decades after the 
Second World War helped build up a system of private employer-sponsored health insurance. Over the last three decades, they've been dismantling that system, the very system that they helped build. And so, you know, sort of like un, um, you know, uh, sloughing off healthcare responsibilities that they formerly took on onto the backs of workers. And that makes it, it just creates a, a more burdened workforce. Um, you have to get your healthcare somewhere else. You have to pay for it, more of your paycheck, whatever. And so, um, you know, I think pushing for, frankly, a more universal, broader system where people are taken care of by the state is something that employers have a stake in pushing for. And I know a lot of employers that, you know, are that are starting to do that. Uh, there's, there's, um, we had, there was a recent article in the New York Times talking about uh, the National Restaurant Association. I don't know if you saw this, came across talking about um, the Serve Safe program and the lobby, the essential reality that the economics of a training program like Serve Safe takes dollars and funnels them into a uh, advocacy group that works really hard to make sure wages don't change. You know, (laughs) it's a pretty sick system when it was laid out like that. It was something I think a lot of people like yourself saw, um, you know, from, from afar. Um, What, what other reforms like in your mind uh, should be taken up, um, you know, that are, that are most important in this moment? You know, you mentioned the book that we haven't had any real positive labor law reform in what, 90 years in, 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 And I think I heard you say that on a recent podcast as well. Like, what other uh, things should we be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the National Restaurant Association is, you know, sometimes called the other NRA. And um, it's a pretty significant lobbying force at keeping that tipped minimum at, I think it's 265, maybe. I mean, it's just, you know. Jeez. And um, so, you know, obviously... In that industry, I, you know, I don't know. I think there's a part of me that that after writing the book and talking to so many people in, especially restaurants, is that the restaurant economy is not going to come back like it was three or four years ago. We just have too many restaurants. You know, like we're not going to have as many as we used to because the labor force is just simply unwilling to work in them or has been taken up by different um, industries. Like the way that we, the American economy laid off, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the span of two months, you can't simply rehire them all in the same job they once had. It's a significant reallocation problem. problem. Like whereas in Europe, they furloughed everyone. You kept your job, right? And all of a sudden you just start back up. It's a very different model. Um, As to your question about like prospects, I mean, labor law reform would be good. You know, the the PRO Act, um, which which passed the House and, will probably not pass the Senate anytime soon, um, but would be a great idea, which would allow, you know, workers to um, come together, organize for collective bargaining rights without management interference. Um, But I also think that, you know, that probably even that doesn't really solve a more existential problem um, is that the American workforce is just so... Um, vulnerable and precarious. Um, you know, a, a third percentage of the American workforce, you know, routine in the service sector, routinely reports, you know, 
having been homeless or is facing homeless, if a paycheck or whatever is missed, you know, wage theft is the largest form of theft in America by a landslide, you know, like in other words, bosses steal more money from workers' paychecks than the entire other, every other kind of theft there is. And um, so it's it's just a, a situation where I think um, we have to think a little bit, you know, deeper and longer term about how can we continually rely on a workforce, which is year to year worse off. Eventually, like there's a built-in crisis tendency to that thing where we can't just keep in healthcare. It's the most clear. I mean, all of us will end up in a nursing home or long-term care. Those jobs are really bad and they're, they're sort of getting worse. And um, you want your nursing home attendant to make like $50 an hour and to work six hour days, four days a week that like, you know, that when they're with you, they're on. And right now, we're going the opposite. And I just think at some point we have to grapple with that reality that at some point that system will undermine our health and our well-being. And that's a real problem. What can workers do, you know, in in this moment, the people that are listening to this that may be maybe a frontline worker, maybe a uh, up and coming manager who, um, you know, in my travels, sometimes the work frontline worker on the rise that has survived the challenge sometimes quickly adopts the model that is not in the best interest of, you know, of the community. Right. What, oh, what have, like, I want to hear like, what, what, what can that frontline person speaking beyond the enterprise, but to the worker in the community, what, what do you have to say to them? Well, so I'm, you know, I'm like my, persuasion is that there are very few like individual solutions to complicated problems, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, all I can say is that there's a few ways like workers get raises and better jobs and better schedules and remain safer on the job. Uh, there's very few of those things that don't involve some degree of collective organizing i.e unionization um there's not that many laws that just popped up and say oh you know what we will like how did fast food workers get it how did they get how did they go from 725 an hour to a lot of cities 15 or 16 dollars an hour they organized how did nurses ended up getting like high paying jobs like some of it's the tight labor market but when there was not a tight labor market, they still made a lot of money. And that's because they organized. How do teachers have relatively stable careers um, in the public sector? Um, that is absent some of the other attacks on public sector workers. They're the most union, highly densely unionized organization in the country. And so I think like, you know, finding a way to have a collective voice on the job benefits you and benefits those around you. So I think that's, one way um as far as like you know management or mid-level management is concerned um i think like being very careful and receptive to what your workers say they need is important like for example during the pandemic um you know osha investigated almost no workplace incidents of 
of COVID outbreaks. Like I think it was six or eight percent. For whatever reason, they didn't do their job. And public, you know, we know epidemiologists know now that when workers made a complaint about a COVID outbreak, um, two weeks later, there was very often a COVID outbreak there. Like they were a good barometer of the health in the workforce. So I think managers can like, I'm not saying they don't do this already, but like trust their workers. Like when they put up a red flag, um, follow up. You know, uh, if you look at if you look at healthcare data um, or like workplace safety data, let's say, um, all, like very few non-union companies report incidences of hazards or illness or death or accidents to OSHA. I don't know why. There's a federal requirement that they do, but they don't, right? They break the law with total impunity. But by and large, unionized workplaces do report that stuff because in like meetings, they say, well, we know that you had a couple accidents last week. Like we have to report this stuff or else we will tell the Boston Globe that you didn't, right? But there's no mechanism for that to happen at a non-union workplace. It never gets out. So I think, you know, management can follow the law, that would be good. You know, like right now, a lot of them, when it comes to workplace safety in service sector industries, which were essential to the pandemic, simply didn't follow the law. And I think the law is a, you know, reasonable standard, a baseline standard. Well, Jamie, I appreciate you taking time to talk to talk to me about this um, and your new book. I have one final question and I'm going to lead into it. Uh, it might make you laugh. It might make you sad. Uh, I'm going to lead into it with my favorite quote from your book. Okay. So, highlighted dog-eared. Uh, I, I'd rip it out and frame it, but uh, you ready? Yeah. Work is a scam. <laughs> yeah. You spend far too much time doing it, and most people aren't paid anything close to the amount of value their labor creates. In the last few decades, those who've added the most hours to their work week have seen their income stagnate or decline. Uh, I asked you this last time we talked, and I want to ask you it again. Um, what's your hope for the future of work? Well, uh, I mean, my hope, I guess. Okay, so I'll. So, I think the thing that your question leads to is like there was a lot of experimenting over the last few years um, with the idea that we are simply doing a lot of unnecessary work. In other words, I wrote a whole book about essential work, but which begs a sort of question like, well, what is not essential work? Like, what is what is the increasingly like hours filled economy that we have uh, doing? We learned a lesson during the pandemic that is like people can be productive from home. Like we don't need anyone looking over your shoulder telling you to do your job. And I think some of those lessons are really important and we need to really um, lean into them and and say that uh, like there may be some segments of the the, the work of ma of managing a workforce that simply might be unnecessary actually especially in the sort of well-paid echelons of white collar work people seem to be happy to work from anywhere without a lot of without the same level of oversight everyone that I interviewed in the sort of the white collar world told me this they're like we're fine we're good, you know, so that's one, um, you know, did you say less of the hope? I guess I have that like, we think hard about what is really necessary work and begin to organize our economy to make sure we are doing only that 
and leave out, leave off other kinds of things. The other thing I guess would be the hope of the future of work would be to really look hard about what the future of work is. And unfortunately, the few, like what jobs will grow over the next couple of decades? And the jobs that are slated to grow are low income jobs in healthcare. Like we're talking people of color in scrubs making 1350 an hour. Like that is the, the material future of work. We are gonna be added far more to those people than anybody else. And even as we add more, we don't have nearly enough. So I guess I hope that because that is right now the kinds of people we're adding to our economy, that we really recognize the valuable services that they provide and we reward them accordingly. Um, you know, this is for their benefit as much as it is for our benefit. And I think, you know, low wage, low skill, whatever you want to call it, healthcare is the is the bulk of those new jobs that we will we will be creating as the boomers age, even as Gen X gets sicker. And so I think focusing on that segment and um, things that we can do to improve those jobs would be a hope of mine. Jamie, thanks for taking time. Hey, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. I mean, I don't even know where to start to talk about the uh, not just some of the points that Jamie mentioned, you know, the fact that the number one theft in America today is wage theft, uh, not just that a third of our service sector has reported being homeless, uh, or his points around how workers are unprotected with low levels of support. I think the perspective that Jamie shares, uh, not just here, but in the book, the thing that sticks with me the most is the perspective that Jamie talks about with regards to extraction and how corporations today often extract more profit and time while workers earn less. I think his points and his perspective uh, are a call to action for organizations and leaders, a call to action for government officials, a call to action for educators, a call to action for parents, a call to act in hopes that we bring more dignity, more respect, better work, and hope that can actually be fulfilled for the people that make our communities work. Jamie said, when workers have good jobs, it's good for all of us. When workers have bad jobs, it's bad for all of us. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you, if I haven't encouraged you enough already, and Jamie hasn't, to head on over to your local bookstore and pick up Essential by Jamie McCollum, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Bring It In so you never miss an episode. We've got some awesome guests lined up that you're not going to want to miss. Now, back to work.